Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. With me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. We're recording this on Friday, June 19th, also known as Juneteenth, a day to celebrate freedom and one that's fittingly one of the longest of the year in terms of daylight. It comes one day before the summer solstice, ending a spring primary season that saw three House incumbents lose their re-election bids in a primary or convention. There could be more Tuesday. We'll touch on that throughout the pod. We'll also welcome Austin Chambers, the president of the Republican State Leadership Committee. We had his Democratic counterpart on a couple of weeks ago, so now we'll get another perspective on what to watch for in state legislative races in November. After that, we'll break down a couple of new campaign ads on the airwaves. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down-Ballot Counts. Up first is Jerome's Gem. Jerome's Gem, my number of the week, is 123. That's the sum total of years of U.S. House service that will have been accumulated by year's end by New York's three retiring members of Congress, plus Elliot Engel, the House Foreign Affairs Committee chairman who faces a difficult re-election in a primary on Tuesday. Engel, who first came to Congress in 1989, is the co-dean of the New York House delegation, along with Appropriations Committee chairwoman Nita Lowy, who's not seeking re-election after 32 years of service. In the South Bronx, Democrat Jose Serrano will retire after almost 31 years of service. And Pete King, New York's most senior Republican, isn't seeking re-election after what will be a 28-year tenure in the House. So New York, where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez unseated a 20-year incumbent in the 2018 primary, will see a new generation of officeholders in those three districts, and possibly in Engels District, too, where the incumbent may not survive a primary challenge from educator Jamal Bowman, who is almost three decades Engels Jr. There are crowded Democratic candidate fields in Lowy's district and in Serrano's district, where the Democratic primaries are the deciding elections, while King's mildly Republican district on Long Island is one to keep an eye on in the general election. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your Giro's Gem of the Week. After the break, we're going a little further down ballot. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Austin Chambers, president of the RSLC, which works to elect Republicans to the down ballot offices, including Lieutenant Governor, Secretary of State, the State Legislature, and the Judiciary. Austin, thanks for coming on Down Ballot Counts. Good to be with you all. So Republicans had a pretty successful 2010. It resulted in a net gain of more than 700 state legislative seats, along with winning the House majority and controlling redistricting in numerous states. Um, It set the GOP up for a pretty big decade. Uh, Democrats have had a few good years since Trump was elected, and I know they're hoping for more success in November. Um, So I wanted to start off by asking you, at this point, we're four and a half months out. What's your outlook for Republicans in state legislatures on election night? Well, you know, we're 137 days out. A lot of things are going to change between now and then. But you're absolutely right. In in a certain sense, we're victims of our own success uh, because of how well we did in the early uh, 2010s. Uh, we now are having to defend a lot of majorities. Uh, that's certainly better than the opposite problem of, of not having majorities to defend. Um, but to your point, when you look at the numbers, 
And uh, we look at things in, in net numbers, meaning flips, seats that flipped from Democrats to Republican or, or vice versa. In the first three years of Barack Obama's presidency, uh, there were 768 seats that the Republicans picked up from Democrats. In the first three years of Donald Trump's presidency, there have been 329 seats that the Democrats picked up from Republicans. So Democrats certainly have a long way to go, uh, which means they have a lot of opportunity going into 2020. Uh, but I think what you've seen, uh, based on just those two numbers there that I quoted, is that Republicans have done better than the historical average, which is 425 seats in the first three years of a president. Uh, time in office of the opposite party uh, making gains. So certainly we've got a lot of majorities we've got to defend, but I'd much rather be us than the Democrats. So it's June of the election year. Um, recruitment's over, right? We're, we're pretty well into primary season. So I just want to ask you just strategy-wise, what, what's your focus right now uh, at this point in the cycle? Well, our focus over the last few months has been making sure that our incumbents were doing a great job during coronavirus, uh, which we've had some really uh, great leaders step up all across the country to make sure that they were uh, prioritizing people's health and safety and well-being, but also prioritizing the economy and figuring out how do we safely reopen the country and states all across the nation. Uh, so that's been a priority, is making sure that they're prepared to do that. As part of that, a key has been making sure that fundraising didn't slow down uh, because we didn't want candidates to have to worry about raising money when they ought to be out in their communities taking care of their friends and neighbors. Uh, so what we've done is, is make sure that our team stayed focused on plowing full speed ahead so that we've got the resources necessary to win uh, in November. Uh, we had the best first quarter uh, fundraising that we've ever had. Uh, we had the best April that we've ever had in the midst of coronavirus. Uh, and what we will announce in 12 days is that we've had the best second quarter uh, in the organization's history by a long mile. Uh, so we've we've had some really good success on the fundraising side, and I believe that will continue uh, over the next 137 days as, as we're closing this thing out. And you control a lot more legislative seats and chambers than Democrats, as you mentioned, and you have more chambers to uh, defend. Which chambers do you think will be the toughest for your side to hold in November? You know, I don't have them. Um, I don't have them ranked as which one's more important or which one's tougher than the other. But of course, if you just look at the numbers. Uh, it starts to paint a picture. You've got places like Michigan, where we've got a three-seat majority. Uh, only the state house is up there. The state senate's not. You've got states like Arizona, where we've got a three-seat majority in the house, two-seat majority in the senate, meaning they would need to flip three and flip two to take control on the Democrat side. And you got states like North Carolina, where we've got a five-seat uh, they they need to flip five in the House and, and four in the Senate to take control. Pennsylvania, three in the Senate, nine in the House. Iowa, simply a three-seat majority uh, in the House. So when you look at these, what you'll see is that just a few seats all across the country uh, could make a huge difference. And, and our biggest stress point in this is preparation for redistricting. And uh, you'll see that when you start to look at these margins, as few as 42 seats could determine as much as a 136-seat swing in Congress when you take a look at the public estimates that have been put out from worst-case Republican map to best-case Republican map. That's a 136-seat swing that's determined by just a handful, 42 state legislative seats. So it really does put this into context. Mm -hmm. And could you elaborate a bit on redistricting and for maybe listeners who don't 
know a lot about that, you know, once per decade power of redrawing lines. Uh, why is it so important this year? Well, everything, you can point back to uh, almost everything to redistricting. And this is, this is a little bit different than even normal because this is the one time every 20 years where the redistricting cycle overlaps with the presidential cycle. In 2010, Republicans made gains because of high Republican turnout, low Democrat turnout. What we're going to have this year is record turnout on both sides. So that's when this puzzle of it's about 35 states where the legislatures have control over redistricting and about 12 of those that truly matter uh, in terms of what the margins are currently and the swing that you'll see in Congress. Um, that's why this puzzle is so important and that's why so much money uh, from both sides, an unprecedented amount of money on, on both the Republicans and Democrat sides, will be spent. The other thing that I think you'll see from 2010 is that it was a wake-up call for Democrats they finally now understand there's this thing out there in America called state legislatures and that uh, all of the policy making and power doesn't just reside in Washington. Uh, no one in Washington draws their own congressional district. That's all done in the states. And that's why, you know, state elections are always important. But that's why this year they're more important than ever before. What are some Democratic held legislative chambers that you're targeting in November? Yeah, uh, you take a look at places where there, there may actually be some opportunity this year, like Minnesota, for example, where we control, it's one of two states in the country where the legislature split. So in Minnesota, we control the Senate, the Democrats control the House. We believe there's an opportunity for us to take the House back, given everything that's happening uh, right now uh, with the unfortunate situation in Minneapolis. Uh, then you look at places like, you know, New Hampshire and Maine, for example, where maybe we could make gains, or, or Nevada uh, or Colorado. But for us, the way we've looked at this is, of course, when you've got as many majorities as we do, uh, you're going to be on defense trying to defend your legislative majorities. That's your number one objective. But we've viewed that the best way for us to go on defense in those states is to go on offense in those states. And what I mean by that is when you look at our 12 targeted states, there are 115 districts inside of those target states that are currently held by a Democrat, but Donald Trump won them in 2016. When you look at the opposite side of that coin, you'll see that there are only, in those same target states, there are only 50 seats where Hillary Clinton won, but are currently held by a Republican. So we view there's some great opportunity to flip those seats as part of our way of defending those majorities. So what we say is the best way to go on defense is go on offense. So that's what we're focused on is going on offense in those states while also keeping an eye uh, on the opportunity that exists in some of these other places where the Democrats do have narrow margins like Maine and New Hampshire and Minnesota and Nevada and Colorado and others. It does seem like there's some overlap between some presidential and U.S. Senate battleground states and some state uh, legislative battleground states that you mentioned earlier. I mean, what is that like? How does that influence or affect, if at all, how you manage and run down ballot elections in states that have a lot going on top ballot? Uh, Donald Trump affects everything is, uh, is the answer to that question. And that's, uh, that's why we want to lean into that. And that's what I was just talking about with those 115 districts that are key targets where he won them in 2016, likely will win most of them again in 2020. We need that, um, we need that win and that success at the top of the ticket to translate all the way down. Uh, so that's going to be a key focus of ours is making sure that those folks who are, are uh, coming out to vote for the top of the ticket, coming out to vote for Donald Trump, 
vote Republican all the way down the ballot. What you'll see, we've done a lot of research on this, what you'll see is that oftentimes there's anywhere from 15 to a 25 to 28% drop-off uh, in people going all the way down the ballot, especially when you get to these states where your ballots are, you know, four, five, six, sometimes 20 to 30 pages long, depending on the county that you're in and all of the offices that, that are up, you just see this tremendous drop-off of people who aren't voting uh, all the way down the ballot. So there's going to be a few different pieces that, that are at play here. One is encouraging Republicans to go all the way down the ballot. And then the other, of course, will be trying to persuade people who maybe aren't with us at the top of the ballot in the U.S. Senate or Congress or presidential uh, to be with their friend and neighbor who's their Republican state representative. And we've seen some success with that thus far in suburban Houston, suburban Philadelphia, um, you know, Connecticut, where we won some seats. So uh, there's some there's some opportunity that exists all across the country, and we have to go about it in different ways depending on what the district is, what the state is, what the dynamics are. You can follow Austin on Twitter at A Chambers GOP. Austin, we really appreciate your time today. Right. Thanks so much. Good to be with y'all. Up next, we're heading to Kentucky and New York City. Have you been on the ground in Louisville uh, with the protesters the last three days, Ms. McGrath? I have not. And why? Well, I've been with my family and I've had some family uh, things going on. I stand before you as your brother, as your cousin, as your neighbor, as your fellow good troublemaker. My name is Charles Booker. That was an ad from Charles Booker, a state representative who is one of 10 Democrats running to take on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. In Tuesday's primary, Booker faces the National Party-endorsed Amy McGrath, one of the top fundraisers of any senator or Senate candidate in the country. But there is momentum right now behind Booker, and this stinging contrast ad shines a light on him being out on the streets fighting for civil rights. What's that out for you? Yeah, Kyle, so this Booker ad shows uh, footage from a candidate debate on June the 1st, which was a week after George Floyd's killing. And Louisville is the hometown of Charles Booker and also Breonna Taylor, an emergency medical technician who was unarmed when she was shot and killed by police in her residence. And that's gotten a lot of attention in this Senate race. And Booker has you know, amassed an army of endorsements from liberal luminaries and organizations. And he may yet defeat McGrath, who's raised more than $41 million for this campaign, as the preferred candidate, as you mentioned, of the Senate Democratic leadership to oppose Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And that takes us to New York, where 16-term incumbent and House Foreign Affairs Chairman Elliot Engel is in the toughest primary of his career, as Greg noted earlier. This is an ad from his challenger, Jamal Bowman. Elliot Engel has been in Congress since 1989, and his connections to the district seem to have frayed. He was caught on a hot mic during a protest rally, saying his main challenger is Jamal Bowman, helped found a public middle school in the Bronx, wants to see a Marshall Plan for climate change, jobs, housing, and education. In a district that needs new energy, Mr. Bowman will bring it. Jamal Bowman is a former middle school principal in the Bronx, and that ad is simply someone reading the New York Times endorsement of him over the longtime incumbent. Simple, but very effective at getting the message across. What stood out to you? Yeah, once again, Kyle Bowman is using Engel's embarrassing hot mic moment in this ad in which uh, Engel lobbied the Bronx Borough president at a press conference earlier this month for a turn to speak. And he says, quote, if I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care. Um, But as you mentioned, Bowman's ad much more focuses on 
His endorsement by the New York Times editorial page on June the 12th, which said that Bowman can bring new energy to a district that needs it. Who knows how many voters that's going to influence, but does help with a campaign narrative for him and with donors, probably. And it's always good for a campaign to get an endorsement like that to add kind of a good housekeeping seal to your operation. All right, we'll leave it there. Now, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with a political trivia question. But let's first review last week's question and answer. I asked, who was the first black woman to serve in Congress? And the four choices are Shirley Chisholm, Barbara Jordan, Curtis Collins, or Yvonne Brathwaite Burke. Kyle, it's time to reveal your answer. I'm going Jordan. Okay, very good guess. But the answer is Shirley Chisholm who was first elected in 1968 from New York. In 1972, she became the first black candidate to seek a major party presidential nomination. She served in the House until 1983. But Barbara Jordan entered the Congress not long uh, after Chisholm. So it was a good guess. But if you got Chisholm right, uh, listeners, uh, pat yourself on the back. And now for this week's question. New York, which has its primary on Tuesday, presently has 27 congressional districts. That's tied with Florida for the third most though New York has lost House seats in seven straight reapportionments because of below average population growth. Question, what is the largest number of House districts New York has had in its history? Now, because that's kind of a hard question, I'm going to be a nice guy and give you four choices. The answer is either 39, 42, 45, or 48. Once again, what is the largest number of House seats that New York has had in its history? You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We'll reveal the answer and ask a new question on next week's episode of Down Ballot Counts. That's it for us today. But before we go, Greg, what else are you watching this week? Quite a lot, Kyle. We've already talked about Engel's primary against Jamal Bowman. Congresswoman Yvette Clark and Carolyn Maloney have the same serious challengers they had in 2018, except they have more challengers this time that could split the anti-incumbent vote. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has a big spending challenger in former CNBC journalist Michelle Caruso-Cabrera. In Kentucky, we talked about the McGrath-Booker Senate primary. Also, Thomas Massey, that party-bucking libertarian Republican, faces a primary challenger. There's also a Republican runoff in North Carolina's 11th district, where Mark Meadows, now the White House chief of staff, used to hold that district. And there's a Democratic primary in Virginia's 5th District where Republican Denver Riggleman was ousted in a party convention earlier this month. A word of caution that we may not get results for days as a result of mail-in balloting. But it's a busy Tuesday, everyone. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. The producer for Down Ballot Counts is David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We will talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Laura Carlson, and I'm dropping into your feed to tell you about Prognosis, a new daily show from Bloomberg. Monday through Friday, we'll spend a few minutes with you every afternoon to help you understand life in the time of COVID-19. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 
So come back every afternoon for our coverage and stay safe.